evening, everyone. Fantastic singing. It's great to be here this evening, and you're all, of course, very welcome. Tonight we are concluding 1 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as an introduction, I imagine many of you here tonight will have benefited from having supportive family members. That could be brothers, sisters, parents, grandchildren, cousins, children, all of the above. Uh, These are ones that you can count on, who you know you can turn to them if you are in need. But you might also be able to think of instances, whether personally, professionally, or in the news, where a family has not functioned as it should. Parents who are meant to nurture and protect their children have abused and neglected them. Children who are meant to obey their parents have been disobedient with severe consequences. Or instead of honouring and looking after your parents or parents in their old age, children have neglected and even manipulated them for selfish gain. And it really is a tragedy when families do not function as God has instructed. And it is the same for us as a family in the local church. And Paul very much saw the church as a family. His favourite name for believers was brothers and sisters, or brethren. He used it 27 times in his two letters to Thessalonians, and he used it at least 60 times in his letters. Brothers and sisters is translated from the Greek word adelphoi, which literally means of the same womb. Brothers and sisters of the same womb. Paul saw the local church as one big family. God, the Father... And believers born again as brothers and sisters through and in Christ. And like a child without a family to protect and to provide for them, the believer will suffer severely without a loving and supportive church family. Paul knows that the child of God needs the local church to grow, develop their gifts and to serve him. So as he closes this epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul addresses three essential aspects for the life of a well-functioning, healthy church. And these are my three points tonight. These are church leadership, partnership, and worship. So we'll take time to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 to 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So a lot of instructions in there and a lot to get through. Uh, The first aspect of the well-functioning, healthy local church family is the church leadership. Without leadership, a family falls apart. And the biblical model for leadership in the local church is through appointed male elders who have been granted gifts by God to lead and oversee the church spiritually. We are told in 1 Timothy 3.1 that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer as elder, he desires a noble task. 
It is good for men to desire to be overseers or an elder, and there are certain qualifications given by God for those who want to be considered for the role. And if you've been with us for over a year, we went through these last year in our studies of 1 Timothy and Titus, and I'll give you a very brief reminder if you weren't here or if you've forgotten of what these are. In first, these qualifications, in 1 Timothy 3, 2-7, Paul says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, must not be a recent convert, and he must be thought well of by outsiders. We see in these verses the very high standards that are needed to be considered, or someone must have, in order to become an elder, And they, of course, need to maintain these qualifications or these attributes as they continue in their role as elder. It's not to say they're perfect. We can all think of, maybe not our elders. We all think of elders. We all all know our elders, and we know they're not perfect. They do a great job here. Paul's glaring at me. Um, We know that they're not perfect, but this is the pattern of their life. As they seek to become more like Christ, they're to have these attributes in their life. And we're told in verse 12 of our passage that elders are over you in the Lord. They're over us in the Lord. This means, as Hebrews 17:13 says, we are to obey your leaders and submit to them. So when God's servant, led by God's spirit, calls us to obey God's word, when they admonish or warn us, we must obey. When God's servant, led by God's spirit, calls us to obey God's word, we must obey. But it's important to note that God does not intend elders to be dictators. For not solely are they over us, as the verse says, but they're also among us, our verse says, uh, chapter 12, verse 12. Elders are a gift to the church, and they work alongside us, beside us. They labor, it says, and the labor there is the idea of that hard physical work. They labor among you, as well as being over you in the Lord, and admonish you. So elders are leaders, but also examples, as they work hard to follow God, and we should follow their example. It's not easy to be a spiritual leader, responsibilities, battles, and burdens are many, and often the encouragements are few. But, in verse 13, we're told to esteem them, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because of the work they do, esteem them in love. So not only to accept them as elders, understanding their authority over us, but to respect them in love for the work that they do, and then encourage them on to further service. And the result of the local church family submitting, obeying, following, and encouraging this leadership will be unity, peace, and harmony. And we see that in verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. And we learned recently of unity in the church at Fernley. And of having the same goal to seek, to serve, and please God. And the opposite of this unity is division. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. As in a family, division in the church leads to different goals, aims, can lead to rivalries between the family, can lead to factions, and ultimately that leads to separation. Division. James 4.1.2 reveals to us a root cause of division and rivalry in the church when it says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight 
and quarrel. Selfishness on the outside leads to strife on selfishness on the inside leads to strife on the outside. Instead, it is through exemplary leadership, which we submit to, obey, and respect, that we can enjoy God's blessings as a united church family. But the leaders alone cannot do all the work, so Paul provides our second essential aspect of a well-functioning, healthy church family, which I've called the church partnership. In the same way that our bodies rely on many different members to maintain our overall function, the church is described in 1 Corinthians 12 as a body whose members are to use their specific roles, their specific gifts, to serve fellow saints. This helps maintain the healthy function and ongoing service of the church. And in a typical family, it is the parents, those who are older and more mature, who look after the children. And eventually the older children grow up, And perhaps they can take a bit of the burden away from those who are older or from their parents and take responsibilities away, freeing up the parents or those more mature for other tasks. In a similar way, verses 14 to 15, Paul provides wisdom for the brothers, but also the sisters, brothers and sisters, this brethren. Paul provides wisdom for us, meaning every member, in administering administering to one another. He urges what is to be done for those who are less spiritually mature or just those believers who need some additional help. The first instruction he gives is to admonish the idle, the ESV says. But after some research, I personally don't think idle is the best translation of the Greek word taktos here. The word is used only in the Bible in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but in classical Greek works it's used to describe troops who are not in battle order. So I think unruly, which your version might have, if you have a King James or a New King James, I think unruly is a more accurate translation from that original Greek. And admonish here means to warn or reprimand. So admonish means to warn or reprimand. Therefore, Paul here calls us to warn or reprimand brothers and sisters who are unruly. They are disorderly. These are those who are disorderly, disruptive, careless, or out of line. As in the classical Greek works, you can imagine a soldier who is marching in a different direction or out of time with the rest of the battalion. And while the loving atmosphere of the church, like a family, encourages individual development and opinion, if this results in sin, it must be addressed. Where there are no rules in a family, disorder and chaos swiftly follow. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul admonishes, that warning, he admonishes those who refuse to work for a living, who were not disciplined, who were not walking in step with the others, and who were not contributing. Let's all ask ourselves tonight, are we contributing? Are we serving alongside my fellow brothers and sisters in our service of God? And we're told to admonish the idol, and it can be tempting for us to think that, well, hope, that maybe the problem will go away on its own so that we don't need to intervene. And yes, sometimes the Holy Spirit does convict the sinner without anyone's direct one-on-one admonishment. We have a God who is patient and gracious with us in our imperfection. And there is wisdom in praying for the person to repent and then waiting for the right time to admonish them for any sin. But typically I'd suggest God uses the ministry of his faithful servants to bring brothers and sisters to repentance. He uses us. And we saw this in our study of Matthew 18.15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Go and tell him if he sins against you. Another possible temptation which prevents us from addressing another believer's sin is believing it's the job for someone else 
perhaps for the elders. We might think they know how to do it much better than I, so I'll just let them do it. And yes, admonition is one of the jobs of the elders. We saw that in verse 12, those who labor among you, over you in the Lord, and admonish you. It's one of the roles of the elders to admonish. But brothers and sisters in verse 14 addresses not only the leadership, but to the entire church as well. All believers are responsible to admonish those who are unruly, those who are undisciplined, disorderly, and have it leading a sinful life. We might also be thinking, who am I to correct someone when I've got my own issues, my own sins? We may be afraid that if we were to confront a brother or sister about something they've done, his or her sin, they will just point the finger back at us. And we know we'll be guilty as charged, for we know we have all sinned, even the elders. But so that might mean we avoid bringing this up in the, person that, in the hope that the other person doesn't judge us in return or doesn't bring up what we do wrong. But like a cancer that is discovered and left alone, this approach just allows sin to fester and grow in the church. And the longer we leave it, the more complications it brings and the more damage it does and the harder it will be to remove. In Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 3, he again issues this unruliness or idleness, suggesting that the Thessalonians had not heeded Paul's urging to admonish fellow believers. We don't have to be perfect to admonish the unruly, or it would never get done. Instead, 2 Timothy 2.21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable reuse, set aside as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. We need to judge our own sins first, remove the log from our own eye, and then we can approach our brother or sister in love to admonish them of their sins as we have been commanded. Second category of sins who Paul states the believers are to help are the faint-hearted. The original Greek, oligosuchus, is literally translated as little-souled. Those who are dispirited, disheartened, or downcast. This refers to believers who don't go out of their comfort zone to serve God, who perhaps faint under the fear or feeling of affliction or persecution. It is those who are perhaps dejected by their own sin, their own unworthiness, or even being assaulted by temptations that threaten their backsliding. And every church will have its share of those who are faint-hearted at some time or another. And just as Paul urged the Thessalonians, today we are to encourage them, encourage the faint-hearted. This could take the form of a comforting word, to encourage them with the gospel or the doctrines of grace, and to remind them of God and his great promises. Paul then thirdly urges believers to help the weak, or support the weak, your translation may say. These are not those who are physically weak, but spiritually weak, who have not yet grown strong in their faith. Similarly, in Romans 14-15, to 15, Paul addresses saints weak in the faith, who were not seizing the freedom to which Christ had set them free. These believers in Rome were abstaining from meat, eating only vegetables, and were keeping to the old Jewish system of holy days. These believers were also severe in their judgment of believers who did not follow these rules, of the more mature believers who did not follow this keeping of the old religious system. Paul urges the Romans to help those, or to help, he believes, urges believers today to help those who are spiritually weak, 
to come alongside them, to pick them up, to help them stand up, and to help them grow in their faith, understanding the freedom in Christ which they have to go on strongly for the Lord. We can do that today as an assembly of God's people. If we see someone attempting to bring old covenant laws into Christ's new covenant today, and Paul warns us of this in Galatians 5, 1-4, he said, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated then to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. If we believe we must keep one part of the law, we are obligated to keep the entirety of it. Therefore being severed from Christ as we attempt to work to achieve salvation. A common example I've come across is Sabbath keeping which is actually the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament. There are many references to the Sabbath in the New Testament, including the assumption that Jews under the law in the time of Christ would be observing the Sabbath. But there's no direct or indirect command for believers in the church age to observe the Sabbath as a day of rest or of worship. So if if we believe today that we must keep the Sabbath holy, that we must keep the Sabbath holy, as the Jews were to under the Mosaic Covenant, then we are obligated, as Paul says, to keep the rest of the Mosaic Law. Obligated to keep it. And this would then sever us from Christ's perfect sacrifice at Calvary as we seek to add anything to his sacrifice. This is not, besides the fact that the Sabbath was a Saturday back in the Jews' time, 2,000 years ago, rather than the Sunday which some hold today to be the Sabbath. And there is, of course, great value to rest periodically, as we saw in, as we see in Genesis, in God's pattern of creation, where he rested on the seventh day. Rest is very important. There's also, obviously, clear biblical instruction to gather regularly regularly with the saints to worship him, to worship God, which we typically do on a Sunday in this culture, and we should prioritize this. But we are not prohibited, as the Jews were on penalty of death, from doing work on the Sabbath. Also is important to consider 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In the end, it is a personal conviction that you should, of what you should do with your own time. But we are to do all for God's glory. And Paul tells us not to judge anyone for their individual spiritual convictions, which may be different from ours. And he says this in Romans chapter 14. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So we are to help correct those who are spiritually weak, who are seeking to take away from Christ's finished work at Calvary by adding laws and works to salvation. And we need to seek to inform and educate their conscience rather than violating their consciences and being a stumbling block. So we've seen we're to use our specific gifts and roles to serve fellow saints, to maintain the healthy function and ongoing service of the local church. More mature believers are to minister to those who are less mature or those who are in additional need of help by admonishing admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, and helping the weak. 
And as we've touched on, these are very difficult tasks for us to do. And this is why Paul gives us some wise counsel at the end of verse 14 and into verse 15 on how we can do this. Verse 14, he says, be patient with them all. As parents must be patient in raising their children, so too must the people of God be patient with those they are ministering to. Because most times there will be resistance. Verse 15 continues, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Here Paul emphasized that our motive is important when we minister to fellow believers. He instructs us to always seek to do good to one another, no matter the response we receive. If our motive is a desire to be praised and appreciated, we'll be left disappointed if they reject and oppose our attempts to help. This may then lead us to sin against them by repaying them evil for evil and may also discourage us from trying to help them or others again instead in colossians 3 12 to 14 paul encourages the believers in their relationships with one another to put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and above all these things put on love put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony so instead of a desire to be praised and appreciated we are to have a desire to please god by obeying his word and treating others with love seeking to do good to one another. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 5 described himself and Timothy as your servants for Jesus' sake. They were not seeking their own glory, but the spiritual good of others. If God is our purpose, we will never be disappointed by the response to our service. If God is our purpose, we will never be disappointed by the response to our service. So as part of our church partnership, All of us are to minister to our brothers and sisters in Christ, warning the unruly, encouraging the little souled, and helping the weak, being patient with them all, and ensuring that we have the correct motive of seeking their spiritual good in our service to God. In a family, partnership is vital to the health and well-being of its members. So another question for us all to consider, are we bearing our share of the burdens and of the responsibilities of the church family Or are we merely a spectator who watches other people do the job? A final point of the evening then. And the third essential aspect Paul gives of a well-functioning local church family is worship. Worship of God is the most important activity of the local church. And the ministry to one another that we have discussed tonight must flow from this worship. If ministry does not flow from the worship of God... It will not bring glory to or please him. Therefore, it's important when we come together and when we worship God that this is true worship. Worship that seeks to glorify and please him. And often today, the temptation in many churches is to provide a form of religious entertainment, catering to the appetites of the congregation. And while this may increase church attendance... It does not produce true worship of God if he is not the complete purpose and focus of the worship. The great danger today is that we love loving God more than we love God. 
The great danger today is that we love loving God more than we love God. That we love the activities associated with worshipping him more than we love God himself. And it's a great blessing to enjoy worshipping God. But he is to be the purpose and focus of that worship. We're not aiming to please ourselves. And when we think of worship, we may immediately think of singing. And yes, singing is a form of worship. But in verses 16 to 22 of our passage tonight, Paul has helpfully provided us with five elements that make up the true worship of God in the church. The first is to rejoice. He says to rejoice always. Joy in Paul's letters is a basic mark of the Christian. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Also, Paul instructs the believers in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And this does not refer to a constant state of happiness, depending on our circumstances, but it is a deep contentment of what is found in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We're to be constantly engaged in the joyful worship of God, no matter our circumstances, which will change, and no matter what we are doing. Not only does rejoicing in God glorify and please Him, it takes the burden out of ministry as we minister to others, and it gives us strength to make Him the purpose and focus of our serving. Second element that Paul gives us of true worship in verse 17 is to pray. Prayer is an indispensable form of worship which all believers are to do individually, but also corporately. That means together, and that's what Paul is telling them to do here, this corporate prayer. He says to pray without ceasing. Prayer is to be a regular occurrence in the believer's life, a top priority for us. Spouses should should pray together. Parents should pray with children, and believers should pray with one another. So another question for us all, do we prioritize prayer? Are we regularly praying to God, not only individually, but with our families and with our friends? Are we regularly coming to all the church prayer meetings that we have here at Fernley? If not, what are we prioritizing instead? Are there any idols in our lives which need to be addressed that are taking our attention away from God. The parable Jesus gave of the persistent widow in Luke 18 is used as a lesson of persistence in prayer and not giving up. And we know that God answers prayers in his own time. Daniel gives us a great example, or is a great example, as someone with a good prayer life. Daniel 6.10, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Are we regularly worshipping God through prayer? Third element of true worship is thankfulness and is found in verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. So thankfulness is to characterize every believer's life as it did Paul's. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 1-2. We give thanks to God always for you. Paul always gives thanks for them. Chapter 2 verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. Always and constantly, Paul was giving thanks to God. We're enabled to give thanks to God for all circumstances, as there will be some which are evil and displeasing to him, but we're to thank God in all circumstances. 
Colossians 3.17, Paul writes, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, give thanks, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In contrast, we're told in Romans 1.21 that thanklessness is a mark of an unbeliever. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Both in the good and difficult times, we as believers should identify the many blessings that God has lavished upon us and return thanks to him through prayer, singing and worshipping him. David gives us a great example in Psalm 103, where he sings, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We must remember as well to thank God for the greatest blessing that he has given us. Verse 12 of Psalm 103, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Our sins have been forgiven through Christ's sacrifice at Calvary. Believers are to give thanks in all circumstances, for nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And we will not always feel like rejoicing, praying, or giving thanks to God. But we are given the reason why we are to do so at the end of verse 18. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God. The fourth element of true worship of God involves his word. Apart from God's word, the Bible, we have no certain revelation from him. Worship that ignores the Bible is not spiritual. And the early church, of course, did not have the benefit of having the completed work of God, the word of God, and therefore the God spoke through prophets. He would speak through them who would pass on his message. Ephesians 2.20 tells us the household of God, his church, was built on the foundation, was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This means the direct revelation and teaching given to those with the gift of prophecy was the foundation of of which the early church was built. And this, was a, this foundation was laid once and for all. Today, we have, we're very blessed to have the completed revelation of God's message to us in the Bible. And there's now no need for God to provide fresh revelation through prophets. There's now no need for God to provide fresh revelation through prophets. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's entire word, both the Old and New Testament, is wholly sufficient for us to be complete and equipped for every good work. We must therefore make it a priority to read it ourselves, to hear preaching from it, and to then apply it to our lives. So prophecies are the authoritative authoritative messages from God. And Paul says that if the church in Thessalonica did not listen to the prophets, they could be accused of, verse 19 says, quenching the spirit. They could be accused of quenching the spirit. 
The Spirit of God is pictured as a fire in Matthew 3 and in Acts 2. Therefore, the imagery Paul conveys here of quenching or extinguishing the Spirit's life, or the Spirit's work in a believer's life. Um, <laughs> so yes, the imagery it conf- um, that Paul conveys here is the extinguishing of the Spirit in a believer's life. Instead, we're instructed throughout the Bible to be filled with the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, and to be led by the Spirit. Not to quench, but to fill, to walk, and be led. We yield to his control, we follow his lead, and we allow him to exert his influence over us. The opposite would be to resist the Spirit, or as we see elsewhere in Scripture, to grieve him. And as well as not quenching the Spirit, Paul commands the Thessalonians to not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. They were to discern whether what the prophet said was indeed from God. And similarly today, we have a responsibility to watch out and to, be, to discern whether what we hear is true and whether it holds to the truth of God's word. So we're to watch out for false teachers, instead to hold fast to what is good, which is the truths found in Scripture. The fifth and final element of true worship of God that Paul speaks of in our passage is living godly lives. Verse 22, Paul writes, abstain from every form of evil. The ability to obey this command evidences whether a professing believer is a true Christian. John 3.11 tells us, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Paul continues in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify means to be set apart, to be set apart for God's exclusive use. And what God began in our lives, our initial sanctification, when we were first saved and set apart for him, is being progressed during our lives as we become more like Christ. God started our sanctification, he separated us in Christ, and as we become more mature, we become more like Christ, we have an ongoing sanctification. And then... This will finally be finished by God, verse 23 says, be finished completely at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know this because 1 John 3, 2 says, when he appears, we shall be like him. When Christ returns, we will be like him. Our sanctification complete. And that's also called glorification. And we can trust these words because verse 24 says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So believers are to abstain from every form of evil, anything that is against God's word and does not bring him glory and honor. And instead, we are to be set apart for him. And looking forward to the day when we will see Christ and we will be like him should be a great motivation for us to strive to lead godly lives. So the worship of God is the most important activity of the local church. And the five elements of true worship that we've seen that Paul speaks of are to rejoice always, to pray, to be thankful, to obey his word, and to live godly lives. These aspects form an essential part of the well-functioning, healthy local church. Paul then concludes his letter to the Thessalonians in verses 25 to 28. 
Three times in this letter, Paul has told the Thessalonians of his prayers for them, his prayers for them. Now he asks them to pray for him and his fellow servants. This is an example of Paul's humility, of relying on other believers for their spiritual support, and also of the partnership of Christian fellowship. Similarly, let's ensure we are all praying for other believers and to be encouraged that they are praying for us as well as we seek to worship and to serve God together. Verse 26, Paul tells them to greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. They were not to show favoritism to certain church members through only greeting or only giving this cultural greeting to a select group. Similarly, when believers meet, we are to greet one another in a warm, loving and culturally appropriate way. Verse 27, Paul commands that his letter is read once again to all the believers, all the brothers, all the brothers and sisters, emphasizing the importance of the word of God in the local church. It must govern our conduct and guide our lives. We are to read it personally, but we are also to hear from it in fellowship with fellow believers, as Paul commands here, applying and obeying it to our lives. So another question for us all to consider this evening, do we prioritize our own personal Bible study and also the public preaching of God's word? And do we actively seek to apply it to our lives? Paul finishes his letter in the same way that he started it, wishing them the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the heart of the good news of the gospel, and we are to live in constant remembrance and deep joy in the salvation purchased by Christ at Calvary for us. In conclusion, we've seen that Paul saw the local church as one big family. God is Father, with believers born again to become brothers and sisters in and through Christ. And like a child... Without a family to protect and provide for them, the believer will suffer severely without a loving and supportive church family. Paul knows that the child of God needs the local church family to grow. Paul knows that the child of God needs the local church family to develop their gifts and to worship and serve God. So as he closes his epistle to the Thessalonians, he has reminded us of the three essential aspects of the life of a healthy local church family. The leadership, the partnership, and the worship. Let's make sure we respect, love, and encourage the elders who work hard among us, who are over us. Ensure that we minister to our brothers and sisters in love, and that we offer true worship to God as he has commanded. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we have been able to come before you and hear from your word. Do pray that you'd give us discernment as to what is good of the truths found in Scripture. And we do thank you for the great blessing it is to have the Bible in its complete form and that we no longer need to rely on that direct, new, fresh revelation from you. So do pray for our elders in this church. We thank you for the discernment you have given us, given them in what is to be preached here, the topics to be covered. We do pray that as they work among us and over us, that we would respect them and love them and that we would seek to encourage them and that you would uh, encourage them in the work that they do and help them to make wise decisions for us as they spiritually look over us. We have been reminded of the importance of the local church. We do pray that we would prioritize the gathering, that we prioritize worshipping you, attending the prayer meetings, admonishing and warning one another, and that you would just guide us in these things to do them for the, with the right motives not seeking our own gain, but to seek your glory. So we do thank you once again for the blessing it was to gather here this evening. We pray that as we leave, 
we would seek the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in the future, that we would seek to admonish them, and that we would seek to become more like Christ as we look forward to a time when we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And we just pray that this would spur us on to good works and that we would be resting in the finished work of Calvary. So we do thank you for this time, and we thank you for all these things. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen.